Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word in your hands and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at the first couple of verses together this morning. While you're turning there, uh, just by way of introduction, this is my first time to get to be with you all in Harlingen. It's a privilege uh, to be with you. My name is Will Nettleton, and I serve as the RUF campus minister at Trinity University up in San Antonio. Uh, For those of you who don't know, RUF is our denomination's college campus ministry. And so I actually labor on your behalf. I I work for all of our churches in South Texas Presbytery uh, as an evangelist and a minister at Trinity. And it is a privilege uh, to get to preach God's word to our college students there. Uh, Thank you for your prayers and your support for us uh, and for RUF. It's a privilege to get to serve and labor on your behalf. This semester in our RUF at Trinity, we have been studying the Ten Commandments together, and so the law of God has been uh, something I've been reflecting on a fair amount uh, this semester, and so I thought it might be helpful for us this morning to take a look at the prologue to the Ten Commandments to remind us what our motivation is for obeying God's law. Uh, This seems to be an issue that comes up uh, a lot for many of us when we think about God's law or uh, the Ten Commandments. Perhaps even as I told you that we were uh, studying the Ten Commandments together with our college students, you may have thought, why would they do that? Why would they study those uh, together? Don't the kids know the rules? Uh, Don't they know the rules the same way we do? Don't kill, uh, don't steal, you know, all the ones that uh, we're supposed to do to be a good person. But when Jesus is teaching on the law, he tells us that that sixth commandment, do not kill, goes beyond not taking a life. He tells us if we've been angry with our neighbor in our hearts, that we have broken that commandment, that in some sense we have killed them. And so Jesus, as he teaches the law, unpacks it with greater depth and greater clarity. And so these commandments that can often be very familiar for those of us who are in church uh, week in and week out have unplumbed depths. Uh, They are always worth returning to. Perhaps for some others of you, the question is simply... What do we do with this? What's our relationship with this law? Now that Jesus has come, I understand that the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, but we are on the other side of the cross. What do the Ten Commandments and God's law have to do with us now that Jesus has come and fulfilled that law on our behalf? Jesus told us in Matthew 5 that he has not, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So from Jesus himself, we find out that the law has ongoing significance for us this morning. He did not come to abolish it. He didn't come to do away with it, but to keep it and to fill it out. So we are still to keep God's law. But anytime we start talking about God's law and keeping it, we run into a problem. None of us are very good at that. We are, in fact, unable to keep it. So what do we do? Where do we find the motivation to even try to keep this law that it seems we cannot keep? And what is even the point? How do we relate this morning to this law? And I think the answer to those questions is found in the prologue to the commandments themselves. So we're going to look at those couple of verses this morning. We're going to start with some context. Before God gives his people the commandments, he reminds them of one very important truth. He is their God who has brought them out of slavery. And that order makes all the difference for how we go about relating to the Ten Commandments. 
So I've given you three points there uh, in your bulletin, three motivations for keeping God's law this morning. Number one is because of the God of the law. Number two is because of the context of the law. And number three is because of the point of the law. And we'll look at all three of those in turn. Before we do that, let's turn our attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And before we read it, let me ask God to join us by his spirit and give his blessing. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we now turn our attention to your word. It is no vain word. It is no empty word. It is our very life. You have promised that when it goes out, it does not return to you void, but it accomplishes whatever purpose that you have for it. And so I pray for us this morning as we have gathered as your people that that would be true. We claim that promise for ourselves. Jesus, you said that you are our good shepherd and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray you would help us to know it this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. It was the spring semester of my freshman year of college when I actually walked into my first RUF meeting as a college student. I grew up in Mississippi and attended Ole Miss, and I had been invited uh, to RUF by one of my friend's cousins. And so I wandered in and heard a campus minister stand up to teach on the Ten Commandments and start with a parable about Freddy the fish. Freddy uh, was a fish who longed to be free of the ocean. He wanted to leave the confines of the water and experience the glories of life on the shore, basking in the sunshine, feeling the wind in his gills. I didn't realize it at the time, but it's basically the plot of The Little Mermaid, right? This is the story of Freddy the fish. Of course, the story goes, Freddy leaps out of the water onto the shore, looking for glorious freedom, only to find that the glories of life on the shore involve far less life than he had imagined. The sand scratched his scales, the sun burned his eyes, and worst of all, the air choked him of his oxygen supply. It was only in flopping back into the water that Freddy the fish actually was able to survive. And it's a silly story, but it's an effective one, and I hope you get the point. In being free from the water, Freddy became less free. He lost his freedom to move and almost even to live. Pastor Tim Keller applies that parable this way. He says, The fish is not more free, but less free, if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. I'm going to say that one again because that's worth repeating. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. So the question for us is, what are the right restrictions? Which are the ones that fit with the realities of our own nature? And in the Bible, we find God answering that question with his moral law, summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. There is a way that God has designed this world 
and us to flourish. And that is summarized in these commandments. So that's one of our first motivations for keeping God's law, because of the God who gives them, because of who he is. There's actually great significance in the fact that God starts with who he is rather than who he is calling his people to be as he gives these commandments. He reminds them first of who he is. So who is this God? Look back at verse 1 with me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, he says. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, you may notice that Lord there is in all caps. It's capitalized. That is the English translator's way of letting you know that the Hebrew word that's being translated there is Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. This is difficult to translate, but it means something like, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am the one who is. Yahweh is the name that he gave Moses at the burning bush when he's trying to get Moses to go and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses asks this God who has come to him in the burning bush, what shall I say to them if they ask me what your name is? And God tells them, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. So what does that mean? By invoking this name, I am, God is saying, I am the one who is. I am the one who actually exists. Unlike all the other false gods and idols that this world offers you, I am real. I am here. He is the sovereign Lord Almighty, the King of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the supreme, self-existent, eternal, and unchangeable God. The context of Exodus 20 actually gives us a picture of this. Israel experienced this uh, at at the foot of the Mount of Mount Sinai. God is speaking to them there, and the chapter before ours describes how God descended upon that mountain in great power and glory. There's thunder and lightning and fire and smoke, and Israel's forbidden to even touch the mountain lest they die. They are in the presence of Almighty God, who exists in unapproachable holiness. So what does that have to do with our law keeping? My point is this, whatever this God has to say is worth paying attention to. The Ten Commandments matter because they are the Ten Commandments of the one true and living God. Exodus 20 tells us it is this God who is speaking these words. I want you to imagine for a moment uh, on a weekend walking into a room, perhaps with a few of your friends, And there is a game on the table in front of you that you've never played before. Uh, Across the table from you is the person who created that game. And you and your friends have two options. You can either play the game on your own. You can try and figure it out with no instructions, no rules. You can just wing it. Or you can let the creator of the game teach you how to play with all the right tips and strategies. Now, most of us who are not completely stubborn, and I would probably put myself in that category, most of us who are not completely stubborn would let the master of the game teach us, right? We would let the creator of the game teach us how to play it. One of the reasons we ought to pay attention to God's moral law in the Ten Commandments is because they are the maker of the game trying to teach us how to play, to put it all too simply. God is trying to teach us how to live, how we were made to live, How are we made to flourish? But he doesn't just stop there. God doesn't just say, I am the Lord, and that's it. He says something else after that. What does he say next? He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. 
So he is not simply the awesome, almighty king of the universe, though, of course, we've just established he is that. He is a personal God. That your is second person singular. He's not saying, I'm y'all's God. He's saying, I'm your God. Specifically, I have a personal relationship with you. So what motivates us to keep the Ten Commandments? The fact that these are the laws and the commandments of the God who knows you. All the way down. Psalm 139 tells us that he is the God who knit you together in your mother's womb. I love that language, don't you? That God sat there and put you together cell by cell, piece by piece. That your personality is not an accident. That who you are was established by God in heaven. He put you together. The God who gave you your laugh who made you smart. These are the words of that God, the personal God. So he is not just a God. He is not just the God. He is not just our God. He is your God. He knows you, and he is calling you to obey these commandments. Some of you have a friend that knows you better than you know yourself. For many of you, this will be those of you who are married, this will be your spouse. Uh, who always gives you good advice and somehow knows what you're going through, even when you can't put it into words yourself. Have you ever had that experience of being in a moment of anxiety or angst and, and not even being able to give expression to what is happening to you internally, and they take one look at you and they know exactly what's going on? They are able to speak into it. And you listen to them because that friend knows you. This God knows you better than that. He is your creator. So we ought to pay attention to his law, his commandments, because he is our God. My God and your God. And these are the words he has given us to live life as it ought to be lived, as he created it to be lived. But God gives us one more piece of information. He is not just the holy creator God, who is also our personal God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. He is the God of our salvation. That actually gives us a really good transition to the second motivation for keeping the law. The context of the law. The God of law is one reason we ought to keep it. But the context gives us even another reason. This is perhaps the most important point I will make this morning. God is not giving Israel the Ten Commandments to obey so that he will deliver them out of their slavery in Egypt. It does not say, I am the Lord your God who will bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, if you keep these commands. No, what does it say? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Past tense. God has already delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it wasn't their obedience that got them out, if you remember the story. In fact, God delivers them in spite of their continued disobedience. One of the most absurd parts of the book of Exodus is back in chapter 14. Pharaoh, finally, his hard heart softening for just a moment, lets Israel and Moses leave Egypt. They're on the shore of the Red Sea when Pharaoh has a change of heart. He changes his mind and decides to come after them. And Israel panics when they see Pharaoh's army. And instead of trusting God, who has done miracle after miracle and sign after sign, who has been nothing but faithful to them this entire time, 
they turn on Moses. They begin to yell at him, Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Could we not have died there? They say. So that's the kind of people that God is dealing with. Not only is God not saving them because of their good conduct, God is saving them in spite of their bad conduct. It was completely undeserved salvation. That is the context in which God gives them his law. He's not inviting them to obey for his acceptance. They, have all, they already have that. God has heard their cry and rescued them and delivered them in a great salvation. He's inviting them to obey because, that, because of that. Because they have been accepted. And that, of course, is our context as well. I started earlier with a question about what do we do as Christians on the other side of the cross. If Israel has a great salvation, how great is our salvation in Jesus Christ? God is not inviting us to obey these commands so that he will save us. He is inviting us to obey them because for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, he already has. Because Jesus perfectly kept every part of this law. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the ways that we fail to keep it. And because Jesus rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, God can look at you and can look at me, and he can say to us the same thing he said to Israel. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the Egypt of your sin, out of the slavery that you had to your flesh. So what motivates us to keep God's law? Where do we find that motivation? The fact that these are the words of the God who saves us. These are the words of our Redeemer. And that brings us finally to the point of the law. Because after this prologue, of course, come the commandments. But now that we know the God who is giving them, that he is a holy God, who is also our God and our Redeemer, and we know the context in which he's given them, our undeserved salvation, the commandments take on a special character. These are not the rules of some tyrannical despot who is laying down his law and telling us to sit down, shut up, and obey or else. These are the words of our God who has saved us, who has delivered us out of slavery and wants us to remain free. This is a law of freedom. The Ten Commandments are laws for how to stay free. How do we avoid going back into slavery? These are laws for our good. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25, God gives Israel's parents these instructions. As they teach the Ten Commandments, when their children ask them, what are these commandments about? God gives them, tells them to say this. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Did you catch that? 
When Israel's children asked why they had to keep God's law, what the point of it was, the answer was not simply because God said so. Their parents were supposed to tell them a story, the story of their salvation. Now, of course, God did say so, and that is a proper motivation for, how, for why we ought to keep God's law. But there's more. There's a story. And this is the pattern of Scripture the rest of the way through. First, the good news of salvation, and then these laws to obey. So the Apostle Paul picked it up in our New Testament reading this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says that we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, his project, as it were. And what has God created us to do? Good works. He's prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. So, are Christians called to do good works? Are we called to obey God's law? Absolutely. Of course we are. But the question is why? So that we can earn our salvation? No, of course not. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human will be justified. We know from what Paul says there just a couple verses back that salvation belongs to the Lord. We have been saved by grace. Grace just means God's undeserved favor. It is completely a gift that we did not earn. But that gift comes with obligations. It ought to lead us to obedience. And the good news is now that we are able to obey. We can walk in those good works because God is at work in us. While we will not do it perfectly in this life, there is something new happening in you. We have put off the old. We have put on Christ Jesus. His Holy Spirit indwells us and is making us into the image of the Son. So what is the point of the law for us? I think it is the same as it was for the Israelites. Not as a means of salvation, not to save them, because that only comes through God. It is to keep us from going back into slavery. It is the life that God rescued us to live, the way we were made to live. So, of course, the law has other purposes as well. John Calvin famously said that it works as a mirror to show us our sin and drive us to Jesus, the only one who can make us clean. In other places, he'll say it works as a bridle to keep us from running away into destruction. But the law's ultimate function, I think, for us as Christians is the one we've just talked about. These guidelines for how to stay free, a compass for living the way that God has called us to live. And we obey them, not to be saved, but because in Jesus we already are. And that changes how we relate to the law. Now we're free to obey, not to get something, but out of gratitude to the one who has already given us everything. As the author of Hebrews writes, we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we run that race? What does the author say? He says we do it by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How do we obey God's law? We look to Jesus, who perfectly kept it on our behalf and hands it back to us as a gift. We keep our eyes on him. Some of you will know uh, the famous golfer Phil Mickelson. 
Uh, Phil Mickelson is known for being uh, for playing golf left-handed. What's interesting he is he tells a story in his memoir that he is actually not left-handed. The most famous left-handed golfer in the PGA is actually not left-handed. He does everything else right-handed. He throws a baseball right-handed. He signs his checks, which I'm sure are very large, right-handed. He does all of it with his right hand. So how did it come to be that he plays golf left-handed? Apparently, when Phil Mickelson was just 18 months old, he would join his dad in their big, in their big backyard for a little practice time. His dad would be playing golf, and his dad was right-handed. And so his dad would swing, and Phil would watch him, and he would try to imitate that swing. But Phil could only do it as he was mirroring his father. He could only do it as he was looking straight ahead of him. So his father would swing right-handed, and Phil could only do it as he mirrored that back to him left-handed. And his father tried to turn him around multiple times to get him to hit right-handed, and he couldn't do it. What was interesting is that Phil had this little right-handed, sawed-off three-wood that hitting it left-handed and backwards, he was able to hit it better than he was right-handed, which I guess is how you know your kid is going to make millions of dollars playing professional golf one day, right? So that's how he learned how to play left-handed. Why did he do it? His father said it was because Phil Mickelson could not take his eyes off of his dad. He couldn't stop looking at him. He wanted to be just like him. He wanted to hit the ball just like his dad did. And in his little 18-month-year-old mind, that looked like hitting it left-handed. That was the only way that he could mimic him. That was the only way that it worked. His desire to be like his dad was so powerful that it overtook his nature. It overtook his natural tendency to hit right-handed. In the same way as we abide in Christ Jesus, as his word abides in us, as his Holy Spirit works powerfully in us, he overcomes our very nature, our very sinful nature, and he changes us so that what was once totally against our nature, keeping his law, becomes our new nature. That we become children of the Father who are imitating our Savior. So where do we find motivation to keep God's law? We keep our eyes on him. We look to the cross where the only perfect law keeper died for our law breaking and handed the law back to us as a guide for how we might follow him. So let us do that this week, children of God. Let us follow our God, not to get something from him, but because we already have everything from his hand in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, we thank you that you have loved us from before the foundation of the earth. That we are able to call on you as our Father because of your Son, Jesus. Because of his perfect obedience and living the life that we ought to have lived but could not. And his atoning death for all of the ways we failed to keep your law. And we thank you for his resurrection and his ascension to your right hand that lets us know that it is finished, that all is accomplished, that we have been redeemed for those of us who receive him by faith. God, I pray for us this week as we seek to now follow your law, as that law no longer hangs over our head, but is now a God. A reminder to how we might follow you in, in obedience and how we might live the way you created us to live. Would you do that in us this week? Would you be at work conforming us more and more into the image of your Son? 
because we know that one day, a day is coming when you will bring to completion that which you began in us. We long for that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.